Do you have the empty reed case blues? Well, luckily for you, Singin' Dog Double Reeds is an online double reed shop and one of the largest suppliers of high-quality and affordable professional and student reeds for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit us at www.singindog.com to see all of our products and fill up that reed case. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Double or Nothing Reeds. You know them. They're the company that's dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities. And good news. Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. Better yet, as authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. Additionally, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. And if you're looking for private oboe lessons and can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit their website, doubleornothingreads.com, for good quality and affordable reed-making supplies and resources, lessons, instruments, and much more. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. tried to start it before she <laughs> pressed record. This is a really great start. <laughs> so Jackie and I are actually in the same room. Can you believe it? IRL. It's insane. We are on tour right now. We're in Oklahoma, the beautiful state of Oklahoma. And we just got to see our good friend Dan Schwartz, friend of the podcast, and play a concert, a Driftless Winds Trio concert at University of Oklahoma. And then today we're going to Oklahoma State. Yes, to see Thomas Dickey and Melissa Bosma, also awesome friends of the podcast. That's like the way to do it, right? You just go places where you can see your friends. Hang out with your friends. <laughs> Manipulate the system. <laughs> yeah. And we heard some awesome students oh play some great God. chamber music yesterday. I know. Like... Really amazing yeah. quality. Throw your instrument in the trash because yeah. the children are the future. No, <laughs> just throw it away. And what else have we been doing? We went shopping because mm-hmm. also tour is a good place to shop oh, in yeah. new places. And we went to a native-owned store in Oklahoma City. Do you remember what it was called? Um, Native Art and Jewelry. Oh, <laughs> appropriately named. Yeah. And yeah, bought out the store, mm-hmm. bought all the stuff, mm-hmm. and then we went to an outlet mall and bought all the stuff. Uh-huh. I got my dress for La Scala. Oh, tell the people. It is um, not emerald green. What's a little bit darker, like forest green? Mm-hmm. But shinier. Yes. It's nice textured, and it's um, kind of a high, more conservative neck, and go. it's about T-length, and it has sleeves, because the reading I've done says... 
that it's a little bit more conservative dress, don't have bare shoulders, uh, don't have a no, low neckline. And so I was really wanting this fabulous dress to mm-hmm. wear for my dream experience. And, you know, things are really like sundressy or totally. less conservative by that definition, just a little bit more modest. And so I started shopping at uh, or looking into maybe older or more mature stores, <laughs> like maybe don't go to Forever 21 for your La Scala dress. <laughs> and yes, Oklahoma yeah. had the key. So I've got a huge garment bag I'm carrying around everywhere. But <laughs> At least you're driving home. Yes, I'm driving eight hours home. As soon as this concert mm-hmm. is over, I'm dropping you guys off at the airport mm-hmm. and then driving, driving, driving and Till I hit Missouri. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is we only have a few more weeks until we are in the same place again. Yes. In two weeks. Oh. We'll see each other again. <laughs> <laughs> it's that part of this semester where you're just putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Or it's like, okay, what am I doing today? Mm-hmm. And then today gets over and then you figure out what you're doing tomorrow. Do you have any advice for students who are about to do a jury? Um, prayer. <laughs> Get yourself in a good mental space. I actually did have a suggestion. I just finished a book, Fight Your Fear and Win by Don Green. Yeah. I was talking to you guys about it a lot. Um, And I, from what I understand, kind of disciples of Don Green have said his book Performance Strategies is a little bit more updated and maybe more applicable to musicians specifically. So I'm going to check out that one as well. But I had just been, to be totally honest and vulnerable with our audience, um, struggling with putting my mental noise to the side when I perform and really replicating on stage what I had done in preparation. And it was starting to frustrate me. And I realized that the old tools that I was drawing from weren't serving me as Mm -hmm. well as I needed them to. And so no Kageyama from the Bulletproof Musician actually Mm -hmm. recommends the work of Don Green. And so I thought, what can it hurt? And it's a book that has you do certain exercises and you actually take a quiz. And then based on your quiz, there are certain things you need to emphasize more than others. And um, I just went into it completely dedicated, open-minded, just see how much I can get from this book. And my experiment was the Roasted Swan solo. (laughs) The Southeast Missouri Orchestra was doing Carmina Burana. And I was really scared about that solo. The bassoon listeners know it's very high. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you jump from very high to extremely low. It's super exposed. Everything stops and it's just you. And I was like really intimidated. And so I went, I'm going to use this book to kind of prepare and apply new things. And if I may say so, I rocked it. (laughs) Yeah, you did. How long did it, like how long did you let it? Settle. Like how how long before the solo did you start it? Um, started it because life is crazy, so we don't always have time to just sit down and read. Mm-hmm. The book's not actually super long, but it did take me several weeks to get through all of it. Um, especially because after a chapter, I tried to like think about and implement mm-hmm. each of the things. Um, but I would say I finished it probably about two three weeks before the performance. Great. Um, and then I had a to-do list of like certain steps that I needed to do in preparation. Um, and yeah, it, it went, I was super happy with it and kind of more than the performance. I was proud of myself for let's try something new. 
let's go into it mm-hmm. with an open mind and see what we can make work. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just nice to have those extra tools. Maybe it won't work for everybody, but if you're kind of struggling with similar stuff, check out the work of Don Green. And actually, once I started talking to people about my experience, I found out that people I didn't even know were using the work of Don Green and some had taken his online courses. And I was like, oh, I wish we could talk about this more openly. But I found it really useful. So if anyone is struggling with that, I highly recommend it. And actually, yeah, other people have too. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to feel like you have to pretend to be invincible. Right. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's a competitive field Mm -hmm. and you don't want people to see your soft underbelly. Yes. (laughs) But, you know, as artists, like to be vulnerable, I think is really important, especially on stage. And if you can't be vulnerable on stage, it's a barrier between you and the people you're trying to connect with through music. So if you can get get comfortable existing in that space where you can get rid of that barrier, then I think the performances are going to be so much more engaging because there's not that like distance like stay there. You don't go any further. I have my protective shield. <laughs> you know, I think it's important and I think that's really cool. I'm going to start reading that book too. No, totally. And in like what you're saying, the two sides of it, I understand that in theory, you know, you don't stand in front of someone with a suit of armor on and go, look at the weak spot in my armor. Yeah, exactly. Here's where it's not working. (laughs) I get why people would want to act like they don't have weaknesses and they only have strengths, but the point of what we do is not to stand on stage as a suit of armor. You're exactly right. Mm -hmm. It is to show the personal and the human Mm -hmm. and, and all of that type of stuff. So yeah, we are breaking all the taboos. <laughs> We're going there. <laughs> Here's our soft underbellies, everyone. <laughs> Stab away. <laughs> so what has been going on with you? I'm just trying to get through the end of the semester. My students are getting through it like rock stars. We have our studio recital coming up. My doctoral student has his lecture recital coming up and then juries and finals. And this was a really intense semester for everybody. So I'm super proud of the way that they have managed to get through it. I know they are stressed to the max with ensemble performances and rehearsals and recording sessions and opera and practicing for your lesson and your jury and sophomore barrier and like all of that stuff is too much and they're killing it. So I'm super proud of everybody. Maybe that's a good segue to remind the listeners that we have a challenge going on. Not a challenge, a giveaway going on. Tell the listeners about the giveaway. Well, we are giving away the bassoon. uh, Well, we're going to have two winners. Right. One noble, one bassoon. The mildy studies. Oh my God, you guys, this is so funny watching an oboist try to pronounce. My face is one question mark. Question mark. Mildy-da-do. Mildew. (laughs) Okay, I can do it. It's the mildy studies edited by Ben Kamins and Billy Short. Yes. I don't even have this in front of me, y'all. This is from memory. Uh, Silk Swab. And two CDs from our amazing past guests, and a mystery surprise that is too awesome to tell you. And what are the oboists? We have a copy of the Barrett book edited by Martin Schuring. Are you sure it's not Barrett oh or Beirut? 
favorite. <laughs> so much shade happening. <laughs> um, and also a silk, silk swab and two CDs from past amazing guest artists and a mystery surprise. So we will have two winners, one oboe and one bassoon. It's going to be too good to pass up on. So you have to submit an entry to our social media of a picture of you getting ready for these finals and juries and all this other crazy stuff you guys have coming up. Yes, the end of the semester is so hard. Everyone feels so tired. It is easy to phone it in. One of my favorite scenes is from the movie Super Bad, which is maybe a more mature movie. I'm not necessarily <laughs> recommending Super Bad. But there is this scene where Michael Sarah is in shop class and he's just drilling these holes into a two by four. <laughs> and Jonah Hill walks up and he says, What are you doing? And he says, It's the last two weeks of school. I'm drilling holes. And he was just putting holes into this piece of wood. Um, and it's really easy. So I said to my students and like to my friends and stuff, like, it's really easy to just drill holes at the end and just phone it in and walk across the finish line. But we want to reward the students who are sprinting across the mm-hmm. finish line, who are working hard, who are, you know, still practicing and getting ready. And it's almost over. You can do it. Like, it's going to be great, but uh, yeah, you get rewarded with all of our swag. (laughs) It just reminds me of my favorite internet meme, which is of the dog sitting at the kitchen table sipping coffee while the rest of his house burns down. (laughs) Oh, I thought you... (laughs) And then the the caption is just, this is fine. Everything's fine. Oh, yes. (laughs) The this is fine. I thought you were going to say the I have no idea what I'm doing, which is also an appropriate dog (laughs) meme for the end of the semester. We believe in you. You can do it. So, yeah, you just got to get through that end of the semester and then you're off to Italy and France. Oh, wait, that's just me. I'm off to Italy and France. But you know, the bummer, it has been that we are having to like stockpile episodes. Mm -hmm. So we're getting them ready for you. Yes, we're not gonna, my vacation will not stop your access to our wonderful product (laughs) that we're putting out. But yeah, we're having to prep like eight podcasts at once to not get off uh, schedule. So it's, we're putting in work for you guys. Yeah. And super huge shout out to Nicholas Daniel, who was instrumental, pun intended, <laughs> in um, helping us get in touch with Ramon Ortega. I know you guys loved that last interview. So thank you, Nick Daniel. Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingalls Reads, you get prompt communication, reads, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E dot com. 
Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, and it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender reed knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student reed knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your reed making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or reed tool roll. Visit them now at gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. Well, we are very excited to welcome to the podcast Dr. Amy Pollard, Associate Professor of Bassoon at the University of Georgia. Welcome, Amy. Thanks so much. It's great to talk to you both and longtime listener and fan. Thank you so much. Um, I would love to start by asking how you came to the bassoon. Um, yeah, it's an interesting story, I think. I think it's maybe a little different than other people, but I started playing flute, um, actually, I think right after fourth grade when I was living in Illinois. And I moved to Ohio in sixth grade and ended up getting really bored with the flute. Um, it was really high. It just didn't <laughs> – I. It didn't really resonate with me, and I was in band class, and I, I was looking over at the wall, and they had all of, like, our method books lined up on the wall, and there was a, a stack for bass clarinet and bassoon, and I was like, huh. It's like, well, I don't think anyone in here plays the bassoon, and I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool, so I went and asked my band director if I could play it, and I had no idea what it was. I mean, I had seen them in orchestras and, and concerts that I'd been to, but I actually didn't really know anything about it. And then they gave me a case and said, good luck. And then I, you know, they gave me a list of teachers and I called one and ended up uh, studying at first with a really wonderful woman in a nearby um, area that was a middle school band director and bassoonist. And that was kind of how I got brought to the bassoon. And it has been a challenge ever since. And I've never gotten bored playing the instrument. So apologies to flute players out there. I think the flute is beautiful. I just couldn't make it beautiful. <laughs> Could you maybe walk us through your educational journey and kind of the starts of your career and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I was in high school, I actually started taking lessons with Eric Stomberg, who was studying at the time at Cincinnati as a doctoral student. So I was taking lessons with him. And then I did my undergrad at Louisiana State University with Bill Ludwig. And at the time, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to do music. I actually was thinking about just doing an undergrad in music and then going on to medical school um, or doing a master's in, like, biomedical sciences or something like that. I was really interested in, in science and um you know, just learning as much as I could about that. But and I think at the time, I just didn't think I was good enough to really make it as a bassoonist. Um, 
And as I was in school, I just got more and more involved in Bassoon. I started going to summer camps, and I, you know, got to play with some really great groups in Louisiana, and I just kind of fell in love with it more and more. And I sort of got over some of that insecurity of not being good enough to make it. And um, after that, I was accepted at uh, the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory in Music to study with Bill Winstead. And um, I did my master's and my doctorate there, which was really great. And um, he's, you know, both both Bills are amazing teachers and really inspiring. And while I was uh, working on my doctorate, I actually got hired at uh, Baylor University in Texas. And so I left after two years of doing my doctorate and started at Baylor and uh, during my first year at Baylor, like late in the year, I got a call from the University of Georgia from a couple people on the search committee and went and interviewed for the job there and have been there for the last nine years. So, um, but while doing that, I, I was working on my doctorate because I hadn't finished some of the classes or some of the, uh, like the lecture recital and the dissertation. And that took me about four years while working full time to get all of it done. Mm. But it happens eventually. <laughs> so you talked about um, this kind of insecurity of I don't think I'm good enough to be a professional bassoonist and that you kind of grew out of that. Was that naturally through watching yourself get better and better experiences or was that something that you had to nurture within yourself? How did you overcome that? <laughs> well, I I say that and I haven't fully overcome that ever. Um, <laughs> so I think it's, I think it's probably an aspect that every musician deals with. You know, we put ourselves out there and make ourselves vulnerable. And with that certainly comes an aspect of insecurity. What if people don't like me? What if I'm not good enough? Um, what if what I'm saying is, you know, horribly wrong? And <laughs> what if I'm leading students down the wrong path? Or, you know, and so I think those feelings of insecurity, at least for me, have always been there. But it's something that I actively, you know, work on and try to, Particularly when I'm performing, I kind of look at it as though I'm an actor and I'm putting on this role and I'm putting on this role of being someone who's really confident in my own musical voice and looking at myself kind of being a, a I imagine who I would want to be as a bassoonist. And I try to portray that as much as possible when I'm on stage or when I'm teaching. Um, but then I certainly have my doubts afterwards. I'll listen to recordings and be like, well, that was terrible. I should have practiced more. Um, so I think that that insecurity is continued, but it's one of those things that, you know, in talking to other professional musicians, it, it helps me to know that a lot of people deal with it, that it's not just unique to my experience. It reminds me of some advice I got, actually, when I was an undergrad, was if you're just crazy nervous on stage to pretend to be somebody else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I tell my yeah. students that a lot, um, or, you know, that you can imagine that as you play that you get larger and larger on stage and the audience gets smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. You can kind of pump yourself up in that way. Yeah, I actually have some scores with other people's names written at the top. <laughs> like just to think of <laughs> that person like right before we begin, you know, like, oh, this so-and-so was always so impressive to me or whatever. Yeah, that's a great tool. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And like, yeah, and I, I have my students write emotions at the top of their music. Like, okay, so you get to this piece. What are we conveying? Like, what are you latching onto? So it's like your character. What, what's, who's your character for this? Mm. 
which I find to be helpful because that helps me to connect to the music immediately and not focus so much on how nervous I might be or any of those insecurities that creep in when we're in that situation. So what drove you to um, a teaching career versus a performing career? So I don't know that it was an actual ever intentional decision. And I, I think that's what's kind of interesting about my career is that I don't I don't ever remember a point at which I absolutely decided that this is what I'm doing or I absolutely decided that I want to be a bassoonist. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm not passionate about it or not engaged. I think it's just that I'm interested in so many things. And a lot of my life has been spent really investing in what I'm doing and then just being open to as many possibilities as I can. But when I was an undergrad, you know, I really, I really loved uh, Bill Ludwig and I found him to be extremely inspiring. And I remember a point at which I was thinking, you know, this would be a great job. Like this would be wonderful to teach at a college and play in a bunch of different places and do chamber music. And that, that would be amazing. That's really what I want to do. And then at some point during my master's, I started being a lot more focused on the performance track and really wanting to, to do orchestra full time. And then when the bailout opportunity came up, it was the idea of, well, this is a really good paying job and it's tenure track and it's stable. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I think I'd be stupid to kind of pass that up. And in doing in doing that full time, I realized how much I really loved teaching and how being involved with students and helping them to realize their goals and helping them to grow as people as well as musicians. That was that was kind of everything. And so that's really where I fell in love with teaching and realized that, that that's a career path to me that has been ultimately very fulfilling. And because I have so much, um, I have a lot of control over what I do, which is nice. So I can pick and choose a lot of things. You know, I'm principal of the Atlanta Ballet Orchestra, so I have a full-time, like not a full-time, but um, uh, half of the year performing outlet with that. And I play with the Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra. And then I have a number of different chamber ensembles that I play with. Um, and I get to do solo recitals. So it's sort of like I get to do everything, which is really, really kind of a dream for me. Um, Follow up question. How many nutcrackers do you do? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. This last season, I think it was, I think I did 21. Um, but we're allowed to take off six and they're starting to, they're starting, I think they're going to expand the season next year. They're actually redoing the entire, um, like, I, I guess Atlanta Ballet has been doing the same um, production for since 1995. And now they have a new director and he's redoing the entire, like, all of the sets. And I think the music's going to be in a different order than it has been. And so that'll be interesting. And he wants to add more performances. So <laughs> I just say goodbye to the month of December. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of your projects was a CD, Ruminations, Bassoon Works of Eugene Boatza. Could you talk to us about um, what inspired you to make a CD of works by Boatza and kind of the process of doing that project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was in grad school, I played a piece by Boatza, The Nocturne Dance. That was actually the first piece of his that I played. I had listened, I would heard music of Boatza, you know, the rest of Sicilian and Rondo. I think I heard that in undergrad. But then I came, I came to the, the Nocturne Dance and just completely fell in love with it. And the, the piano writing and the bassoon writing and it, it just was 
it, it felt really nice that it, like the expression and being able to be kind of it's sort of impressionistic music and it, I found it really beautiful and then I when I was at Baylor I believe I, I got uh, I played his fantasy and really loved that as well and I started looking a lot more into his music because there weren't a lot of recordings out there and in fact there's a number of pieces that hadn't ever been recorded and so I feel like he's this composer that wrote a lot for wind instruments in particular and you know wrote in a lot of different styles so there's sort of some Ravel influences and some Debussy and then Shostakovich and he kind of wrote in a lot of different areas which I found fascinating and he does you know completely borrow from himself all the time as a lot of composers do but when I you know decided to do this CD project and was kind of thinking about what would I want to do that seems to be my my first big idea was to record a bunch of his music it's not all of it I mean that would be kind of impossible because he's written so much but um and also looking at it as introducing some of these pieces to a wider audience to maybe inspire some students to play this like the burlesque is or that's uh, actually only online because it wouldn't fit on the cd um <laughs> Uh, but the, the burlesque is a really cute piece and really lovely. And the trio for three bassoons I found to be really amazing. I didn't know beforehand. Um, and the concertino is great. It's just really hard. <laughs> but, yeah, it sort of came out of that. And I, I tend to over-program. And in this case, when I was looking at all of the music that I was going to play in terms of the amount of time, it ended up being almost 90 minutes of music. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> So I had to scale back a little bit. And then um, there was a piece that I had fully prepared that I actually didn't end up recording because by the end of uh, everything, I was just so exhausted. I actually came down with strep throat right beforehand. So that was fun. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, this is perfect timing. So I like got a, you know, a steroid shot from my doctor and then was drinking tea obsessively throughout all of it. Um but it's one of those things that it's like I had to schedule it. I had all these guest artists coming in and the recording engineer. And I was like, well, you just got to do it. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to know more about your bassoon percussion duo, Colenio. Yeah. Um, so that's with my husband and uh, Scott Pollard. And he, we met in 2010. He was actually doing a one semester uh, visit at, at EGA as the, the visiting percussion professor and the wind ensemble at that time was actually going to Argentina and I think they needed an extra percussionist and so they asked him to go and then he and I had been kind of playing around with this idea of doing the Astropiazzolo Listoir de Tango for it's originally for guitar and flute but guitar music lends itself really well to marimba and so we did two movements of that, and I just transcribed it for flute, and it ended up working really well. I didn't have an idea of how this would sound, and we actually work really well together, which is nice, um, which I find not to always be the case with people who are married. <laughs> um, but we, we have minimal fights when we were rehearsing. Um, <laughs> and then because of that, we, we decided to just kind of keep working on that. And we started doing a lot of commissions and doing a lot of transcriptions. And, um, you know, we have a lot of stuff in the pipeline right now. It's just that we've been a little too busy to, to get a tour going, but hope, another tour. But hopefully next year we're 
maybe in the fall or next spring that we'll have a, another tour in the works and do premiere some new music that we have for the group. So it's been a lot of fun, though. And when we visit colleges and do performances and then do master classes with the students, you know, one of the things that we emphasize is the idea of playing music with your friends, even if there's not a lot of repertoire written for that combination, that you can be proactive in forming new and unusual chamber groups and, you know, get involved with the composers at your school, you know, your composition students and ask them to write pieces for you and do transcriptions of works that are out there. And just this idea of exploring new timbres and new colors based from a, a point of working with people that you love so that it's a greater I, I think that makes a more fulfilling chamber experience if you're if you're making music with people that you care about. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you have so much going on and so much on your plate. Um, what kind of things do you do <laughs> for self-care in order to achieve work-life balance, if such a thing is even possible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, we hear that phrase, work-life balance, all the time. I actually think of it as work-life balancing, like, like that it's an active process because mm-hmm. I don't feel like it ever gets balanced. It's sort of, it's kind of like you're spinning plates or you're sort of, you know, trying to manage it because sometimes there's some, some downtime where you can really invest in yourself and in your relationships and in your hobbies. And then there's other times that you're just really buried in your work. Um, and I try not to feel guilty about that. That's one of the first things for me that, that makes a difference is I try to just look at it as being these periods of, you know, those, those times that you're really invested in one or the other and you're just kind of being a little bit on the other end. Um, but that's the big thing for me is to try not to feel, to beat myself up too much about it and, and try not to look at myself as being a superwoman because it's just not attainable. Um, but in terms of self-care and things that I like doing, um, I really love hiking. And so whenever I get a chance to do that, which isn't super often, um, but that's really great. My husband and I actually did like a three-week uh, road trip uh, car camping out west this summer after IDRS. Wow. Um, so we ended up in Canada. Um, so after three weeks in the car together and putting up tents in random places, we were ready to get home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I do really love hiking and being outdoors. Um, I, I play golf, so that's actually really fun and relaxing for me. Um I, I love reading, so I read a lot, and then I've really gotten into doing yoga and meditation, and that's something that I find to be really helpful at all times, just kind of to help deal with the stressors of the job and with being busy, just finding, you know, 10 minutes to take for yourself to just sit and, and do some breathing is really helpful and effective and something I kind of work with my students on, helping them to integrate in their lives, too. Do you often see students um, whose lives are not in balance? Perhaps they're just really, really overachieving or maybe for some of them it's gone the other way. Um, and then how, how do you address that in your lessons? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a big aspect of college and something that I work with a lot with freshmen that come in is how to use a planner and how to schedule your time and how to sort of set up a plan for yourself for every day rather than just looking at it as, oh, well, I have these classes and then I'll just get to practicing whenever and then it doesn't happen. Um, 
so it's the idea of like teaching them how to schedule and looking at as many different ways to do that as possible. Like I'll make an assignment where they have to bring in a weekly schedule to me for a couple weeks and then we go through it. And if, if they have practice time planned and they didn't do it, that they write down a reason why, um, we talk about good reasons versus bad reasons. Like I just didn't feel like it was not a good reason, <laughs> but you know, like I got really sick, like that's a better reason. Um, so, um, that's one of the things. And then also, you know, I feel like inevitably we, we talk with our students so much about what goes on in their personal lives. And I, I find that to be a really, a really honored task that they come to me with that. And so, trying to figure out for each student what the best route for them to balance their lives is and also to help them understand that it's okay to fail every day. You know, like this is the way that I planned for the day to go and several things didn't go as I wanted, but, you know, trying to make the most of it and look at it as being a process rather than a, an achievement. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I think that's something even as faculty members, we probably go through a task we think is going to take 15 minutes ends up taking 45 minutes or someone knocks on the door needing your time and mm-hmm. you know that two hours that yep. you're going to practice turns into 45 minutes and yeah that's just such a life lesson that we all have to learn absolutely yeah or that meeting that's only supposed to take 15 minutes <laughs> <laughs> or that surprise email that you oh my gosh right away and, yeah. the emails yeah I think the <laughs> The two things that I don't think I realized going into academia were the number of emails I would receive and be expected to then write, and then all of the meetings and paperwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, huh, that's all, like some of these meetings that could just be an email, you know. <laughs> I think there's a lot of memes about that on the Internet. That's just uh-huh. find really amusing. There are, but I feel an underserved meme is, can we all learn the appropriate use of reply all? Because I definitely feel oh, like mm-hmm. correct and incorrect instances to use reply all is a much needed skill in higher ed. Oh, man. Yeah, it's it's really quite astonishing. that, And, like, that's funny because, like, on our email, um, the email program that we use at EGA, reply all is actually the default. <laughs> Oh, yes, gosh. ours too. <laughs> so you have to scroll down intensely. Yes. And so every year we get an email from uh, one of the administrators about, like, here's how you get to the reply button. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, yeah, that's a, that's a good skill. <laughs> well, maybe related, could you talk to us about, in an ideal world, how you structure your practice sessions if you have a – warm-up that you use consistently, and in those not-ideal situations, how do you make the most of your practice time? Uh, Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, I would have time to do a lot of stuff and be able to stretch out my practicing throughout several sessions during the day so that I could be the most productive. Uh, That rarely happens, except if it's a weekend where I don't have a lot to do. But I, I had a really big emphasis on fundamentals, and so a lot of making sure I'm doing long tones and scales every time I practice, and even if it's only a little bit of that, but trying to make sure that I get to that. Um, I have a lot of different routines that I do with it. I kind of switch it up based on 
you know, the day or sometimes I go through a period where I'm doing like the Ole Christian doll drills and then I feel really terrible about myself. So I go back to just doing <laughs> scales with pattern, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I use the Jean-Pierre and I use the Milda and some PR. And so I kind of go through some etudes in addition to just doing regular scales and arpeggios. Um, and for long terms, I have a number of different ones that I have that I do myself and I have my students use, but I also use Bergstein's long tones a lot and Bill Winstead's long tones. Um, so those are really great resources. Um, in terms of scheduling my time, I use the Pomodoro technique a lot, and that's this idea of doing 25 minutes of work at a five-minute break. And that session is what it was they refer to as one Pomodoro. And then after you do four of them, then you get a 15-minute break. And I use that a lot for my work, like emails and, take, you know, writing grant proposals and things like that also. And there's some, like, apps that you can download with a timer, so it just sort of does it automatically. And then during that five-minute break, that's when I can respond to texts or check emails or check Facebook. Um, and I have to put my phone in airplane mode. <laughs> Because otherwise it'll be like play one scale, check Instagram, play another <laughs> scale, <laughs> check Facebook, and it's like literally I looked at it two two minutes ago. Um, so if I don't put my phone in airplane mode, I find myself that I'm a lot less productive. But doing the the technique of those the 25 minutes on, five minutes off, they've done a lot of uh, scientific studies on it, and the brain tends to be a lot more productive that way. And I found that to be the case for me too. So I actually spend a little less time practicing because it's a lot more focused and I feel like I get a lot more done. Do you have any favorite um, solo pieces that you use as uh, uh, teaching tools or maybe some hidden gems that we wouldn't necessarily know about that you like to teach in your lessons? Um, well, obviously I like both. So, uh. <laughs> Uh, but in terms of repertoire, I mean, I just think there's so much great stuff out there. And with with students, I don't have a prescribed series of pieces that they need to do. I actually like to give them choice as much as I can. So I try to make sure that each student is getting variety within the different genres of music. So it's like we're going to, you know, work with something within the Baroque and we're going to work with something within the classical era and something within romantic and different types of 20th century because there's a lot of different subcategories within that. Um, so usually my students at some point will do something with extended techniques or atonal music and things that are a little bit more um, unusual, making sure that they do some unaccompanied pieces. But for a lot of it, I'll give them four or five options. Or if they come in with a piece that they really want to do or they have a list, they're like, oh, I really want to get to these pieces. And then we can kind of gauge that based on where they are in terms of technical ability and musical advancement and, you know, ability to control intonation and try to make sure that it's a piece that challenges them but is not unattainable that they're going to get frustrated with. Mm-hmm. You know, something you talked about with Benjamin Quillio when he was on, uh, do you think there's a difference in teaching undergraduate and graduate students, and how does your pedagogy shift for the two? Well, I don't know. We have a lot of different majors at EGI, so I teach a, a variety of different undergrads. Like, we have a lot of music therapy majors and ed majors and, you know, composition and uh, students who are doing a Bachelor of Arts, so... 
in general, my, my teaching in terms of the style of it adjusts based on the goals of the student. So I still, and, and also in the amount of music that I assign to them. So my performance majors, I, they're going to make the most reads. They're going to make, do the most amount of repertoire and I'm pushing them the most in terms of practice time. But I still expect the same level of performance from all of the students. And I think with graduate students, I expect them to be more independent with their preparation. And I, I think our lessons you know, my teaching style tends to be really focused on details. You know, I think that's how I was taught. And it's sort of this idea of, you know, we're working on these two measures or we're working on these two notes and making them really beautiful and trying to figure out how we create that through the physical processes of the body in order to get the musical idea that we want to speak through the instrument and then expect them to apply that to the rest of the piece. Um, I find with graduate students, I spend less time teaching them how to practice, um, which is a lot of what I start off with with undergrads. Um, depending, I, you know, we still talk a lot about fundamentals, talk a lot about support, talk a lot about voicing, talk a lot about embouchure. Um, so those things, I think, reminding ourselves of. I mean, I'm still reminding myself of all of that when I practice. Um, but in terms of teaching students how to practice and how to use their time, I think I'd probably do that more with undergrads than with the grad students. I'd love to hear about your approach to teaching read making. Yeah. Um, when, so for undergrads, when freshmen come in, I do like a read boot camp at the beginning of the semester, even if they've been making reads before. And I, I teach them the style that I use and then, you know, I ask them to, to do that for a while, and then if they want to start to experiment with some other things, we can talk about some different styles or ways to adjust certain aspects of it or use different shapes. Um, but I try to get them working so that they're making their blanks as consistently as possible, so that they're like little clones of each other. And the idea is to get rid of as many variables as we can. So the cane ends up being the only variable that we're working with because that's enough of a variable, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. um, so we start off with that. And for my undergrads, the non-performance majors have to make 25 blanks a semester and the performance majors have to make 35. And for my freshmen, I will allow them to buy reads for me for the first year, but then they're on their own. Um, and usually by the end of the first year, they are able to make reads that they can play on. And, you know, I, I schedule read classes every week. So I have three different read classes that I have four students in each of them. And that's when we work on scraping and adjusting and teaching the different aspects of the read and troubleshooting and how you can learn. You know, here's we can all learn from each other, too, you know, so like. Bobby is having this problem with his read and this is what it sounds like and we're going to, this is what it looks like and this is what it measures and then we're going to work on this aspect of it and then, you know, Bobby plays it again and it's improved. So that way, you know, students are not only paying attention to their own reads but to other reads so that they get more tools in their toolbox of how to fix something. And the graduate students also help to teach the undergrads in that way, too, because they're in those read classes as well, so they can provide some guidance. Mm -hmm. um, but in doing that, that helps keep from taking up lesson time to work on reads. 
Um, so usually, unless it's like an emergency scenario, I normally don't work on reads and students' lessons at all. That's ideal. Yeah. I mean, it takes more time, obviously, because mm-hmm. that's like another three hours a week. But And also I found, too, in the past, I used to have open read help time and no one would come. Um, <laughs> and then everyone had, you know, these terrible reads. And I was like, all right, done with this. You are assigned and you're showing up and this is when you come. That's a good idea. I should start doing it. <laughs> I also have open read time that nobody comes to. I know. It's like, seriously, this is like free help. Why... You know, and obviously our reads suck, so why would you not want to make it better? <laughs> um, but I think also for the students, it helps them, too, because it, it helps to create more of that sense of community and when they're helping each other, and they also get some time to, to form more relationships with each other. And usually they're with different people each semester, just kind of based on how schedules work out. So I'll do the rose and Galit can do the thorn. Uh, could you tell us about <laughs> a... Uh, favorite memory of a past performance that sticks out in your mind or more than one if you have multiple oh I mean yeah there's there's lots which is great um probably the most recent one that was really fantastic was, or just you know for me was really meaningful is um with Atlanta Ballet last year we did Firebird Suite and it was just really cool to do that with ballet you know in the the original intention of it. And I had some students that came and that was just a really special experience. Um, um, and one of the performances when we got to the infernal dance, you know, everyone always jumps at that point in the audience, you know, which is kind of funny. And, you know, there's usually some laughing, but this one performance, <laughs> this, this woman, like she was pretty close to the front of the pit and you just hear, hear her yell, yeah, get it. <laughs> And I, I could not stop laughing. Amazing. <laughs> she was like super into it, and I just kind of, I just kind of lost it a little bit. Um, <laughs> um, work, work, work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. Um, and I'm like, I wonder if that happens, like, you know, back when this was premiered, Instruments Youth doing this, like, and the audiences were a little bit more vocally involved in the performances. I don't know. Um, but that one was really fun and special. And, you know, with playing with a ballet orchestra, I really enjoy, you know, I actually really love doing Nutcracker. Um, it's hard, you know, so every performance I feel like I'm really engaged, but then also seeing all the children that come and they come down to the pit and they're so excited and it's like getting getting to be a part of these people's family memories and their family traditions, that those that come every year, and that's really special, like feeling that connection with the audience in a really, in a really visceral way that you get to kind of interact with them at intermission a lot and uh it's really cool to have the little kids like come down and see all the instruments and point to things and be like, what's that? Um, so that's really fun for me too. And then any, any performance that I have family members there, that always is really special to me. You know, I um, did a concert series last year with Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra. My grandmother came down and we're doing Mendelssohn three. It was like a Scottish theme and she just loved it. And it was really great to, to have her there and to, you know, something that she continues to talk about she got to go back to her um her community that she lives in and like talk about it to all her friends and so that was really fun amazing 
So, and then all the chamber music performances that I do, getting to play with friends, that's, that's fantastic. You know, Daryl Hale and I have a bassoon duo that we've been doing for a little bit and it's just fun. It's, you know, it, it feels, it feels more intimate, like a, like a house party, like we're hanging out and playing duets together. So (laughs) there's nothing better than that. Yeah, exactly. And so like when you get to play with friends, that's, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a great excuse to um, get together with people where your lives, you know, when we're all in school together, you get to see each other all the time. But when your lives take different routes, it's like you really have to make an excuse to find time together. And so, yeah, Galit and I always look forward to tour and that type of stuff because we don't get to <laughs> hang out otherwise. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, you know, unfortunately, like, half of the time that Daryl and I are working for these performances, we spend playing Settlers of Catan, but that's that's cool, too. (laughs) So my follow-up question is, do you have any memories of an especially funny thing that happened on stage or maybe an embarrassing thing that you'd like to share with our listeners? (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of them. you know, everyone has that instance of, like, coming in in the wrong place and being embarrassed about that. So I'm sure that's happened to me or, like, being in the wrong key and things like that. Um, the, I guess the most recent embarrassing thing that I can think about was, uh, it's not an onstage thing, but um, I work with the Meg Quigley Vivaldi competition as on their um one of the committees. I can't remember offhand. This is perfect. But um, <laughs> fantastic. Um, but so the last competition, we were out in L.A. And the the competition and all of the events, the symposium were held at uh, Colburn School of Music. And on one of the nights, like all of us went to this hotel and, you know, we're sitting around at the bar, you know, everyone's of age. Um, and hanging out and I was walking out into the lobby with a couple people, um, to, to get in my Uber and I was chatting with Whitney Crockett and, you know, we were talking a little bit about a couple things. And then I asked him, I said, Oh, are you, are you staying in this hotel? Are you staying, you know, what hotel are you staying in? And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm staying at home because I live here. <laughs> and it's like at the time I was confused for a second, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you're principal of the L.A. Philharmonic. <laughs> of course you stay here. Like, you live here. You work literally across the street. <laughs> so that was that awesome. Amazing. <laughs> That is a thousand percent something. <laughs> so I'm sure he thinks really highly of me, you know. At <laughs> um, home? Oh, sorry. Who are yeah, you? yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm going to my house, and I was like, oh, you live here. <laughs> Great. <laughs> like I have no idea who he is, you know. <laughs> like, do you? Oh, you play bassoon? Okay, cool. <laughs> me too. What? What a coincidence. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. Where your teachers? Where did you go to school? Are you a student? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. It was great. Was, I'm still not at all embarrassed about that. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a pretty, pretty big foot and mouth. 
I would love to know um, where to whom you look for inspiration. It could be within music or outside of music or wherever it happens to be. Yeah, I love, well, obviously I love listening to really great bassoonists, but I love listening to really great performers on all instruments and vocalists and string players and how they, how they use vibrato and how they phrase. And I mean, it's just amazing. And I think that that, that serves as a source of inspiration for me. I also, in my reading, I get really inspired by other people, particularly if I'm reading biographies or, um, you know, these life stories of these amazing people and the things that they've done. Um, but being inspired by the bassoon community and just, there's so many great ideas and so many great people that are doing this wonderful work that it's just a, gosh, I mean, you can just look at any of these people and feel feel inspired to, to be better and to keep working. Um, externally, I find a lot of inspiration from, again, from reading, like so from novels, but also from poetry and from art and from travel. I really love traveling. And so getting to experience other cultures and see other places and architecture and kind of looking at the way that music can maybe, you know, bridge the gap in terms of different cultures and different societies, I think is really fascinating. And so I find that the more life experience I have, the better I can express the emotions that I want to in the music. You know, one thing I tell my students a lot is to to make sure that they go out and have a life. Like they should make sure that they have friendships and have relationships because how how are you going to play a piece that you feel expresses having a broken heart if you don't have your heart broken? Mm-hmm. So I feel like all of the life experiences that I've had, positive and negative, help me to fuel the different emotions that I want to express within my music. If you could look back in time and give advice to yourself in a younger version or maybe as you were beginning this journey, what would you say? Um I think one of the biggest things would just be to to trust and believe in myself more and to continue to do the work as much as I can with the knowledge that it's going to work out somehow, that if you're really dedicated and you work really hard and you're very flexible and you're open to a lot of experiences, that an opportunity will come along that you can take advantage of, but you just need to be patient and and waiting for those opportunities. I think that's something I struggled with a lot when I was younger, like not knowing what I was going to be doing and be willing to take as many gigs as you can. (laughs) (laughs) It has been so wonderful to talk to you. We're so grateful that you are um, on this podcast with us and I you know, I would love for you to tell our listeners what um, exciting projects you have coming up and where they can find you on the Internet. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Also, it's great to talk to both of you. Um, coming up, some things that are kind of exciting. Uh, our university has a study abroad program for music in Italy. And so three of my students are going to that this summer. And so I'm getting to go over there and teach uh, them and also teach some Italian students at different conservatories across northern Italy 
Um, we also get to go to Venice, so we get to go see where Vivaldi worked, and I think go see his manuscripts. I think they're in Cortona. Um, so I'm really excited about that in, like, a very nerdy way. Um, and I also, later in the summer, I'm teaching at the Saarburg Festival in Germany. So both of those, I mean, I, again, I love traveling, so I'm very excited to get to go to Europe twice in one summer. It feels like a huge luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of playing, I... I have a solo recital that I'm going to be doing this fall. Um, I believe our faculty quintet is doing a recital as well. And then I have some plans in the works for my bassoon percussion duo, Colenio, to do a tour at some point next year. And then also with my oboe colleague, Reed Message, he and I are working on some trio stuff and are trying to put together a recording of the uh, Poulenc trio, the Previn trio, and the Francais trio. Oh, cool. Yeah, um, and we have three different uh, accompanists at UGA that we're going to work with, so one for each piece, which is pretty neat. And we've performed all of them with them in the past, so we're just working on getting funding for that. So those are some of the, the more exciting things that are kind of on the horizon. Um, and then on the Internet, you know, I, I don't have a website. I probably should. I just haven't. <laughs> I've been busy, so it's, it's one of those things that's been on the to-do list for years. And like, maybe if I paid someone to do, I don't know. Um, so I don't have a, a website just for me. Our duo has a, a website. It's colaniaduo.com, and our EGA Bassoon Studio has a Facebook page. So um, you can also find me on Facebook. Um, so, but those are the the main ways to find me online. Um, even though I I enjoy technology and I use I use the iPad a lot in my teaching and that's one of my kind of research areas, but I haven't sat down and actually put the effort into making a website yet. <laughs> that's all right. I'm sure when it happens, it's gonna make the internet explode. I doubt it. I mean, <laughs> the internet. Yeah, it's it's going to break the internet and the fact that I probably am going to put a virus in it accidentally. You know, <laughs> like all of a sudden my website is sharing information with you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, Amy Pollard, thank you so much for coming on Double Read Dish. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. So we hope you enjoyed that interview with the wonderful Amy Pollard. Do not forget to follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can listen to us on any of the platforms where you get your podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, all that good stuff. Our next guest is Alyssa Morris, assistant professor of oboe at Kansas State University and beloved composer. Yes. Yeah. We're excited to share that one with you. Um, Tune in next time. To hear if she has four personalities. Oh boy. <laughs> da 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 da. <laughs> <laughs>